Thank you, Mom, for sharing that music with us. And uh, I remember as a young person hearing my mother play the piano and organ in our church in Chicago. She's extremely gifted musically, um, both in uh, piano and organ and also voice. I think the voice let out some years back, but not too bad at 92. So thank you. And we'd like to welcome you here this morning to Rock Valley Bible Church. And uh, <clears throat> it's kind of interesting, um, Ryan and I have the same topic for our sermons this morning, which is not coincidental, I believe the Lord had an intended purpose there. But uh, I will be, I'm going to be reminded of what my, my college speech professor told me. He said, there's two rules, Phil, that you have to remember when you speak before an audience. The first rule is that you stand up straight so people see you, speak up loudly so people will hear you, and sit down quickly so people will like you. <laughs> so I, I promise not to be that long. <clears throat> and the other one is the 11th commandment, thou shalt not bore your audience. So we'll try not to do that, but I want to get done quickly so the real preacher, Brian, will get up here and give us a word from the Lord. So anyhow, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14, where Andy read earlier. John 14, and the title of my message is, Are You Transformed? And this is a very familiar passage to most of you, I'm sure. In fact, it's a very familiar passage to a lot of the public as well. Why? Because this passage is is preached at a lot of funerals. I've heard it preached many times. I've heard it preached over Christian funerals, and I've heard it preached over those that were not believers often giving their audience a false sense because they don't really go to the second part, the requirements for entering the celestial kingdom and the mansion. So I did have the privilege of preaching this message at, the last, at, at a funeral here for Steve's dad, uh, Steve Halzell's dad, uh, some time back, and I gave both sides of it. It was an evangelistic approach message, but I'm not going to preach an evangelistic message this morning what we're going to do is talk about, are you transformed? And the question I have for you today, is it possible for you to be converted after you're converted? Is it possible for you to be converted after you're converted? And the answer to that question, I think, we'll find very plain in Scripture. All right, so the setting of the story is in the upper room. And Jesus had just entered the city of Jerusalem on his triumphant entry. Shortly before that time, it's the Passover time, and they're separating their uh, celebrating their supper, the Passover supper. And it's very, very um, kind of intriguing to know that five chapters are committed to this upper room meeting, five chapters in John. Did you know that? 17 through, seven, uh, excuse me, 13 through 17, five chapters. Christ wanted to make known his wishes to his disciples. He wanted to make known the master plan, but he had some bad news and good news that he wanted to give to his disciples. And he had been teaching them for over three years, had done miracles, were teaching them, leading them, and modeling God here on earth. And so he has to announce some of the bad news first. And Jesus announces that he is about to be portrayed, or excuse me, betrayed by an inside man. One of his own disciples was working with, of course, the, the Jews, and um, Judas was going to be making false accusations. His disciples didn't take this very kindly, 
They were confused. And uh, like on many other occasions, okay, the, the, the words of Jesus kind of went over their head. Uh, they were confused. They were, became fearful. They didn't understand that Jesus was leading, leaving them before his earthly ministry was ended. They had perceived that he was going to set up an earthly kingdom and that he would rule and reign and they would be at his side to rule and reign as well. Massive disappointment. And we really thank God that he did come to set up a heavenly kingdom, not an earthly kingdom. And I think many of our Christian friends, I know I have one friend in particular that is is so convinced that uh, you know we as Christians need to establish our earthly kingdom. He's involved with politics, and he is so passionate about his political candidate that he has gone at odds with his own family. He is looking for an earthly kingdom. So I think that one of the things we have to be careful of in politics as Christians that we don't portray the idea that Jesus came to set up a kingdom here on earth, that he is here to set up his heavenly kingdom, and we will rule and reign with him. Well, Jesus perceives the confusion, the fear, the frustration from his disciples. And we begin in chapter 14 at verse 1, and he says this. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And he begins to walk them through the transformation process. And I like that term, transformation. We're going to use that throughout our message here. And so the first point of my message is Jesus' proclamation, his proclamation, verses 2 through 5. Jesus picks up on this attitude that the disciples have. They're really kind of frustrated. They're confused. They're downtrodden. And he's going to give them some encouraging news. He tells them that he's going home to prepare a special place for them. And so in verse 2, it says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And he's telling them this wonderful plan that he has. He's telling them that they're going to be part of the kingdom, that they're going to be at his side. There'll be no more pain, no more frustration, no more suffering, no more Romans or Pharisees, no more crime, no more poverty. All the bad stuff will be wiped away completely. And he says in verse 3, I'm going to come and take you there myself. Wow, what a neat promise. How encouraging that is. So how, what was their response? Did they say, well, this is, Jesus, this is what, what we've been waiting for. Or was it, Jesus, we are so glad that you've come to die on behalf of us. No, instead there were blank stares and, and probably some confused looks and maybe even a nervous laugh. And it was kind of, if you put it in today's vernacular, it was kind of like, uh, Jesus, uh, you're, you're scaring us again. You know, I've heard that before. And, and so Thomas actually said this. He said, you know, we don't know what you're talking about. Jesus, verse 5, says, we don't know where you're going. So once again, the message, like the others before, were kind of over their heads. It was lost on them. But in fairness to the disciples, we have to remember that the Holy Spirit had not been given to them at that point, had it? So their eyes were not open completely. They saw a glimpse of the kingdom, but not fully. And they wouldn't see the kingdom and his mission fully until the Holy Spirit was given to them. But, again, even with us, when we receive bad news, how do we respond? I'll tell you how I respond Uh, I feel badly. I feel disappointed, sometimes angry and discouraged. 
fearful and confused. I can't stay focused on anything else for a long time. In my byline messages, you know, you could have knocked me out over with a feather with that information. But Jesus says something else. He further confuses his disciples by telling them that they have to make certain choices before they're able to enter that kingdom realm in the mansion prepared for them. So that's our second point, and it's called affirmation from verses 6 through 12. So what are these choices that the disciples have to make? The proclamation was clear. I'm going to prepare a home for you, and I'm going to come you back. I'm going to come and take you back to myself. I'm going to go and come back to earth, take you with me, and we're going to go have a grand old time in heaven, and you're going to rule and reign with me. That's the proclamation. Now the affirmation. They have to affirm or believe certain things. And so as we go to verse 6, this is what Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to me except, no one comes to the Father except through me. So we have to understand that Jesus is very clear here. The instructions are so simple, even a child can understand what Jesus is saying here. You know, it just really never ceases to amaze me. I talk to uh, very, very intelligent people, very successful people, intellectuals, folks that are, are very wealthy and explain a very simple gospel to them, and they don't understand how it can be so simple. It's got to be more complex than this. God has, how can he have made himself so plain to us? So they try to seek God through their own philosophical efforts and pursuits. But it's a powerful and profound statement. No other religious leader ever made such a claim. It's very exclusive. No mincing of words, no cryptic message, no possibles or maybes or likelies, no confusion. We go to God through Jesus only, not through Buddha, not through Mohammed, not through any of the coexist people that we find out there on a daily basis. If we want to get to God, we have to be a follower of Jesus, which in man's eyes is a very narrow-minded approach. We're very narrow-minded. Very narrow-minded. We're very focused. You know, in Matthew chapter 7, he describes two ways that people must choose, the wide and the narrow gates. And you've heard me mention this one before in a, in a previous message I gave, but Matthew 7 says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for, by the, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And they who enter it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And so the illustration that I've used in the past was picture in your mind the San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge. Very wide, very long, lots of traffic, over 100,000 cars a day. In fact, since it was created, there was a billion five cars that have passed across that bridge. It's an easy route, a scenic route. People are attracted to it, and so they jump on it very easily. That's the wide gate. But at the end of the gate, at the end of the, uh, the uh, Golden Gate Bridge, it's open to the bay, and the cars fall into the bay. They go on to certain destruction. That's the wide gate. But on my farm, there's a small cattle gate. It's very narrow and overgrown until Jared came by and cut all the vines out this week, which I appreciate that. You know, It's only about 12 feet wide. Very few people know where it's at. 
It's hard to see. Doesn't accommodate a lot of people. Maybe a dozen people will go through that gate. But that's the picture of the narrow gate that Jesus says. We're very narrow-minded in our approach. We have one way to God, and that's through Jesus. Here's the other second part of the affirmation that we must understand, is that Jesus is equal to God. Verse 9 says this. He's answering Philip. Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You see, Jesus had a problem with the Jews. The Jews were always seeking after a sign, and Jesus accommodated them continually by showing a sign. But here's the problem. He tells his own disciples, if you don't believe my word, at least believe the signs that I'm showing you. And they were at the point where they didn't even hardly believe him for his signs. A very disconcerting concept here. Well, how are we any different, really? In many ways, we're like them. Many of us want the goodies of the gospel. We want the fellowship. We want all the things that we embrace here at Rock Valley Bible Church. But when it comes to fully embracing his message, the sacrifice, the humility, the selflessness, the suffering, and the holiness, we often ask, can we have a different God, please? One that's more our own style? So here's what Jesus tells them to trigger transformation in his followers, to tell them what the transformation is. And that's the third point, the transformation point. And this last point of this particular presentation is by far probably the one that we should spend most of our time on. And uh, in my opinion, it's probably the most important part of today's message because Jesus gives us a call to action here. And I'm always a big one on call to action. You know, a lot of times we'll preach, we'll teach, uh, we'll give knowledge, and then we kind of go away. And, you know, I think a lot of times we'll miss the point because we need to be told what to do next. What is the call to action? What is God calling us to do? Well, Jesus is very plain here, as we'll find out. He tells us what to do. He does, very plainly. And so I want to repeat something that Pastor Bill Mills said several weeks ago when he was here. In his message, he reminded us that biblical knowledge and information is no good unless there is transformation. How many of you remember that saying? Just a few of you. That was an important, that, I, that caught my attention. You know, all the knowledge that we had, do we need more knowledge? Do we need more information? Do we need to have more training? In order to experience transformation, no, what we need is we need somebody who can compel us to use the knowledge and information we already have. Somebody who could motivate us to action. You know, 1 Corinthians 8.1, in that particular passage, Paul says this, that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, we do need knowledge. I'm not trying to say we don't. We do need information. We do need training. We do need all these things. But, Father, but, but you know, if we... If we um, we substitute uh, the knowledge for the action, we're mistaken. We're mistaken. So we need to be motivated to action. So Jesus tells us what will happen if we fully trust him. Now, I want you to look at this next verse very carefully. It's verse 12. It says this. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. 
Now, do you know something odd about that verse? Yeah. There's some high expectations there being preached, right, by Jesus? In fact, a lot of preachers kind of skip over it, and I even had the, the, uh, the notion of, of just ignoring it completely. I wanted to skip over it because it's difficult to understand. Does Jesus want me to do the same work that he did, raising the dead, healing the sick, feeding the 5,000? Is that what he's calling me to do? In fact, is he asking me to do something greater than these works? It's a troubling verse. And I looked through our, our archive of sermons that Steve preached that I couldn't steal anything from him to answer that question. You know, so what I did is I went around and I looked in certain commentaries and I found a couple of di- little different things that I think I want to throw out here as far as consideration. The best explanation that I ran across was from the Barnes commentary and he says this. He says, the word greater cannot refer to the miracles themselves for the work of the apostles did not exceed those of Jesus in power. But the effect of those miracles, the works and preaching, was that thousands of Jews and Gentiles were converted to the faith. The word greater does not describe the absolute exertion of power, but the effect of the miracles and what they had on mankind. All right, so, you know, we're saying Jesus did these works. Now, we have to understand who Jesus is speaking to here. He says these works are directed to specific people for a specific purpose at a specific place, at a specific time. It was to the apostles. And this is evidenced by the fact that their works ceased after the apostles passed away. But the greater works, the greater works continue today. What are the greater works? We're an example of the greater works. These works went around the world. Whenever we hear the gospel being preached overseas, that's part of the greater works that Jesus is referring to here. But here's the takeaway on this verse, the thing that really appeals to me the most, is that Jesus told his apostles or his disciples what was going to happen to them. He was predicting the future. He was telling them what was in store for them. Now, that's very comforting because he promises things to us as well. We saw those particular uh, future predictions come true in the lives of the apostles in the book of Acts in other places. And we're seeing those things come true in our own lives as well. So the takeaway is good. We're not to be confused by this passage. No, we're not expected to do the works of Jesus. The greater works are possible, but not the works that he did necessarily. So does that mean that we just kind of pack up our laptop and go home? Okay, the works are being done by the apostles all over and that's it? No, of course not. If you look in verses uh, 13 and 14, we do have a mission here. We do have a responsibility. It says, truly, truly, I say unto you, who, excuse me, go down to 13, Whoever, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Well, of course, we know what the specific will is that Jesus preaches to us in the word. We know what his will is. And so if we pray according to his will and his word, we pray in his name, we can pray with confidence, expecting that he'll answer. May not answer today, may not answer tomorrow, but he will answer. And so that's part of our responsibility there. But what about this change that makes a difference? What about this transformational power 
that we need to be experiencing. Is it possible to experience conversion after we are saved? And the answer is yes. And I don't want to steal much from Brian's message, but if you refer to Romans 12, 2, it's very clear. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the transformation of your mind. This is an imperative. This is a command of Paul's. So the question is, how do we know if we're being converted, transformed on a continuous basis? Well, first of all, Paul tells us that we have an active part in that transformation. You see, the Holy Spirit will transform us if we let him. If we let him. Well, the question is, how do we know if we're being converted? Verse 15 gives us the answer. So if you go down to verse 15, it says this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's how you know you're being converted. That's how you know you're being transformed. Not only verse 15, but it says again in verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Proof of conversion, proof of transformation, If you love him, you'll keep his commandments. That's the test. That's the litmus test. Again, in verse 24, the opposite is true. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. It is by design that Jesus says in verses 16 and 17 that we're going to need help in doing this. We're going to need a helper. We're going to need to have assistance because our natural bent is to love ourselves, not to love other people, not to love Jesus, not to love God. And that's why he says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. So it's not incidental, church family, that either our salvation or our transformation, it's not incidental that the Holy Spirit is part of that, but it's central to it. It's very central to it. Now, before I'm done here, I have a few more minutes left. I want to share with you some principles that I learned throughout my lifetime, going all the way back to my college years when I was with Campus Crusade in those years. And this will hopefully help you in your journey in transformation, in daily conversion. And it's called, Have You Made the Wonderful Discovery of the Spirit-Filled Life? How many ever saw that little blue book? I don't have one this morning. It's called, we used to call it the bird book, Gary, when I was in school. The staff always said, oh, don't call it the bird book. (laughs) That's disrespectful. Have you made the wonderful discovery of the spirit-filled life? And it starts out by saying that most Christians lead carnal, non-powerful, ineffective lives. Why? Because they're not filled. They're not controlled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Yes, they're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but not filled, not controlled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so the concept is called spiritual breathing, and it's something that I've used throughout my lifetime. And maybe it'll be helpful to you. There's four steps in this process. I'm going to share it with you real quick. First thing we have to understand is that Jesus promised the abundant and transformed life as a result of being filled, which means directed and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, we read that before. I'll read it again. It says that I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. And, of course, if you go to, you could write this down. We won't turn there. I don't have time. But John seven thirty seven to 39 tells us that the Holy Spirit is responsible for the overflowing and transformed life. 
Point number two, we are filled, which means directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit, by faith, by faith. And then we can experience the transformed life that Jesus promised. Matthew 5, 6 6 says this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Point number three, we must confess our sins. Confess your sins. The little book says this. It says, thank him that he has forgiven all of your sins, past, present, and future, because of what Christ did for us on the cross. And then we confess our sins to him. And whenever you're kept from confessing sins, it circumvents, cuts off that relationship with God. I know when I harbor sin against somebody else, or I'm keeping a secret sin, I realize that my relationship with God is not what it should be. And I don't experience victory in my life. It becomes frustrated. I fail in certain ways. I can't claim victory. I must confess to him. It says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's how we reestablish our relationship with God. We say, God, I'm not going to lie to you. I can't hide sin from you. I'm going to confess it. I'm going to agree with you. Confession means to agree with God concerning that sin, that's terrible sin, that you came to die for it, and I confess it to you. Father, I'm guilty of it. And finally, claim by faith the fullness of the Holy Spirit according to two things. The first thing is that we have to understand that he commands us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It says in Ephesians 5.18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's his command. He expects us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And number two, his promise. According to 1 John 5, 14 and 18. And this is the confidence that we have before him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. So he commands us to be filled and he'll fulfill that promise. He promises that to us. And so ask yourself this, are you being transformed daily? Are you being converted? You can be converted after your conversion experience. Transform your mind. Let's go to prayer. Our Heavenly Father, you call to action, your call to action is for us to obey your commandments and therefore show that we love you. Father, we don't love you in order to gain your acceptance, to gain your love, but we love you because you loved us first. Father, your mighty Holy Spirit, will convict us of our sin. Father, we pray that we will confess that sin and be filled with your spirit, which is to be controlled and empowered so that we might reflect a life of transformation. In Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. Here's Brian. All right, if you'd turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, uh, Phil alluded that's where I'll be spending the majority of my time this morning. I had the opportunity over the last several months to uh, spend some time with the teens in the book of Romans, and it's a book I'm familiar with, have spent a lot of time in in the past, but it the Bible never ceases to amaze me how you can read something over and over several times, and yet something new can impress itself on your heart. So that's what I speak to you today as something that's uh, 
in the last several months been impressed upon my heart. Uh, So I as well am going to be talking about transformations. And initially when I think of a transformation, my human mind starts with uh, before and after pictures. So one common billboard that I've driven by several times is, uh, I think it's a company called Dental Transformations. You have a before picture of somebody that has a less than ideal smile, after picture of a very happy person, bright white smile. It's this before and after picture, and that's the transformation. Another is uh, a lot of these weight loss shows where you see somebody that has this dramatic transformation, right? There's a before picture, and then there's an after picture. Somebody that's done things, and they've made some big changes in their life, lost a lot of weight, and there's this after picture that's really it's pretty impressive. But see, the thing that both of these transformations that have in common is that the before and after pictures are fundamentally the same. They have a lot of the fundamental same things in the before or after pictures. They've generally changed one thing about themselves. And that's different than the transformation that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12. The word Paul uses for transformation in Romans chapter 12 is more literally translated as metamorph or where we get the word metamorphosis. I'm sure most of us are familiar with the process of metamorphosis, as I was. You have a caterpillar that eats, then has this chrysalis shell that he builds around his body and emerges on the other side a butterfly. Who knows what happens inside that chrysalis? I didn't. And that's the metamorphosis. That caterpillar actually secretes an enzyme that digests his body down to the cellular level, and then those cells are reformed. And on the other side comes out this butterfly. See, the difference in that transformation, metamorphosis, is that the before and after are almost on all levels fundamentally different. You see... Ten years ago, I had an influential experience in my life. I think other people here have had this as well, where I had the opportunity to go on a mission trip to a third-world country. And just the process of doing that, seeing the want and need compared with all of the wealth that we have, is a life-changing experience. It really is. But even more than that, to this day, what I remember is the life of the missionaries that we were there to see, Bob and Martha Wright. You see, I was blown away to hear Bob's story, how he had a large, successful construction company in New Jersey, how at that time he had everything going towards what I considered the American dream. He had a great job, he had a great family, and he, had, he was set. But I didn't understand why somebody in that position would leave all of that and move their family to northern Uganda. Northern Uganda is not just any third world country. By most people in the area that we encountered, they would refer to it as the armpit of Africa. It's just south of Sudan. It's an area that's been decimated by genocide. It's natural resources all but squandered. And I couldn't understand why somebody would leave the comforts 
of, an, of a good life in America to endure countless hardships, frequent bouts of malaria, being taken advantage of, stolen from, having property vandalized. What's the earthly explanation for this? And I came to the conclusion that there isn't one. It can only be explained by the transformational power of the gospel that was deeply embedded in this family's life. You see, if the truths of the gospel have been rooted in your life, you live differently. You act differently. If the transformational truths of the gospel are rooted in your life, you are fundamentally different. You're as different as the butterfly is from the caterpillar. I encourage you this morning to think about that in your life. To think about of whether you've had a dramatic transformation in your life. Does your life without Christ and your life with Christ look fundamentally different? As different as a butterfly is from a caterpillar. Or as I preach this to myself, are you holding back on parts of your life? Are you more akin to a butterfly that's trying to, I'm sorry, a caterpillar that's trying to act like a butterfly? Maybe just a caterpillar with glued on wings that's fundamentally the same with one small thing changed. So as you think about that, let's open to Romans chapter 12. I'm going to spend the majority of my time in verse 1, but we'll read verses 1 and 2 for completeness. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So as we dig into those two verses this morning, I'd like to answer three questions about those verses. The first question is, why is there a transformation? The second question is, what is transformed, or for what purpose are we transformed? And lastly, to what extent are we transformed? So Paul opens by saying, I appeal to you, therefore... Brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. At first glance, it appears like Paul's advocating for a works-driven life. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So is Paul advocating for a life that's filled with good works? Absolutely. But he starts with an important connecting word. He says, therefore. And to understand what that word means in this passage is really foundational. Favorite pastor of mine that I frequently listen to, uh, R.C. Sproul, uh, I always hear him say, if you see therefore at the beginning of a passage, before you can begin to discern what the passage means, you must identify what is the therefore, therefore. You have to say, why is it there? Because, see, it's a linking word. It's going to say what follows the therefore is a conclusion based off of what's been leading up to the area or the passage. Because here in Romans chapter 12, the therefore links us back to chapters 1 through 11. And without that therefore linking us back to 1 through 11, we find ourselves in a pretty dark place 
with a works-focused religion constantly wondering whether we've done enough. You see, I had the pleasure of knowing Jody's grandfather before he died. He was a devout Catholic. He was as good a Catholic as you could ever find. Near the end of his life, he was asked if he was going to heaven. And the devastating response that he said was, I hope that I've done enough. I hope so. I hope I've done enough. What a dark place to be in. And this wouldn't have been so shocking to me had he been an Easter and Christian or Easter and Christmas uh, Catholic, but he wasn't. They were in Mass every day. They followed every rule to a T. They prayed to Mary. They were, in his mind, he was a living sacrifice. But still, after that, he had doubts of whether it was enough. You see, what Grandpa didn't understand is he didn't understand the therefore that's in chapter 12, 1. It points us to chapters 1 through 11, where Paul has tirelessly laid out the doctrinal foundations of our desperate need of a Savior, the completed work of Christ on the cross, the doctrines of justification by faith alone, grace alone, and that it's all through Christ alone, and that that's what leads us to sanctification. Romans 3:23 and 24 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. See, Paul's not advocating for moralism. He's advocating for a radical transformation, as he explained in chapters 1 through 11, a radical transformation that he experienced, a radical transformation that affects every aspect of the born-again Christian's life. See, these doctrines of grace, they actually caused Grandpa to resent the gospel. Paul says here, I appeal to you, brothers, or I beg of you, or the King James says, I beseech you, brothers. See, Paul has a deep affection for the brothers and sisters in the church at Rome, and he wants them to experience this same transformational power of the gospel that he has. You see, Paul isn't calling for a works-based gospel. He's calling for morality as the only response to a radical transformation in the Christian life. He's labored for 11 chapters and doesn't want you to stop there. See, all too often in the modern Reformed Church, and I'm guilty of this myself, we want to identify ourselves as different. So we focus on the doctrines of chapters 1 through 11, how we're all going to hell, total depravity, right? And faith alone and grace alone. But then we stop there. You see, because we are saved by faith alone, But it's not a faith that is alone. James says, faith without works is dead. He says in chapter 2, I'll show you my faith by my works. So you see, it's once we understand the therefore in chapter 1, that it's the gospel that drives the transformation in our life. You see, it's not the false assumption that you're trying to be a Christian and that you're working for your salvation. It's that you've been radically transformed and that you are a Christian. It's that you've been chosen, that you're called, that you've been redeemed, that you're righteous in the eyes of God, and that you're a Christian, that your identity is Christ. 
that you're his son and you can't help but live out your new identity. It's that you used to be motivated by fear that you've not done enough in an effort to gain salvation. But now I'm motivated by my identity, which is Christ. So to sum up the first point, the why are we transformed? It's because of the completed work of Christ, the transformational power of the gospel. So if that's the why, let's move on to what or for what purpose. Paul says next, he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Living sacrifice. It's an odd play on words. The word sacrifice, it embodies killing. The essence of the word sacrifice includes killing. How can we be a living killing? The sacrifice Paul talks of is radically different than the sacrifice that has been talked about before in the Old Testament. Old Testament sacrifices were bloody sacrifices. They were sacrifices that were offered for the benefit of the person who was bringing the sacrifice. But as we all know, there's no more need for this bloody sacrifice because Christ came and he satisfied the law forever as the last perfect bloody sacrifice. So if Christ was the last bloody sacrifice, so what is this living sacrifice or what's the purpose of it? You see, Paul says here that it's for the purpose of worship. The purpose is not to make God love you. You're not a living sacrifice to make God love you. It's that God already sees us clothed in the righteousness of Jesus and has accepted Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. So our living sacrifice is to give worth and value and glory to God. Our living sacrifice is not to make God love you. The sacrifice is responding to God's already love for you. That's a hard truth that's so easily forgotten. It's so easy to get caught up in what to do and working out your salvation. But you see that you can't get God to love you more. This is something, the purpose of our living sacrifice is for the purpose of worship. It's something that we've all known since we were kids. Anybody here learned catechism as a kid? Virginia. One other person. One of the catechisms, I don't know why I've always remembered this one. I've forgotten several of them. But one that I've remembered is, what's the chief end of man? Or what's the purpose of man? That's what the chief end. What's the purpose? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You see, when we live this way as a living sacrifice, we give worth and attention to God. So our sacrifice, it's not for the benefit, not for our benefit, but it's to give glory to God. It's not a sacrifice that includes killing. It's acknowledging that there's a new authority in your life. It's acknowledging that you'll be dead to yourself and that you're going to be alive for Christ. Presenting yourself as a living sacrifice is acknowledging that God has all authority in your life. It's humbling yourself to him. It's saying something like, God... I no longer have the authority in my life, 
I no longer have the authority to guide my life, to make decisions in my life. I no longer have authority to make the rules of my life. I'm entrusting my life to you, to your perfect will. I'll submit to whatever you have coming. It's difficult. That's not an easy thing. This is one aspect of the gospel that's probably more difficult for us as American Christians than elsewhere. We are immersed in a culture that is focused on doing what you want to do. Be all you can be. What's good for you is what's good for you. And if you're going to judge me for what's good for me, you're, ju- you're close-minded and you're judgmental. Or as Phil said, narrow-minded. <laughs> and that's absolutely right. We are narrow-minded because these American values, as they may have some benefit here on earth, as a heavenly value, they reek of the flames of hell. The essence of the Christian value is to say, I no longer decide what's right or wrong for me. I turn over the reins of my life to you, God. You are the ultimate authority in my life. And to live in that way, it's difficult. It's difficult to live in America with that being your value system. So finally, to move on, to what extent are we transformed? Or to what extent does Paul say that Christ's the authority in our life? Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Is Paul talking about our physical bodies? Is he advocating for diet, exercise, for us to be physically fit and active? Absolutely not. Paul's talking about bodies being the entirety of who you are. One translation that I like better says, present yourselves as a living sacrifice. Or another says, present your life as a living sacrifice. You see, it's not up to you to decide what areas of your life the gospel will and will not affect. Paul is saying that the gospel affects the totality of your life. If you indeed have been transferred from a kingdom of darkness, and now you're in a kingdom, and now you're transferred to the kingdom of light, sharing in the righteousness of Christ, you don't get to hold back or lord over any part of your life. You see, the gospel, the heart that's changed by the gospel is changed to the deepest, darkest corners kind of looks like this. By the grace of God, I grew up in a Bible-believing church. And to this day, at the time, I didn't know how lucky I was, but to this day, I'm thankful. But you see, there's one gentleman that I particularly remember, and he uh, was a Bible-believing person. He knew the Bible well. It was obvious that he spent lots of time in the Word. But when you saw how this gentleman acted with other believers at church, he was one of the most mean and argumentative people that I've ever met in my life. And this is from a child's perspective. It was not uncommon to see him every Sunday in the back of the church arguing with one of the pastors or elders. Even remember on a couple of points, pastor's preaching from the pulpit and he stands up to interject about a missed word or something that's really not preaching heresy. So why? Why can somebody who claims to be transformed by the gospel treat fellow believers in this way? 
See, he must not have felt that the gospel has to affect every part of his life or how he deals with his fellow believers. Or how about the student that doesn't feel that the gospel has to affect how they study of whether or not God cares if you cheat or if you're honest on what you do? Or the dating couple that doesn't feel that the gospel has to affect your relationship, that God doesn't care if you live together? Or the self-employed person who doesn't feel that the gospel has to affect how you do your taxes, that God doesn't care if you pinch here and cheat there and kind of fudge the numbers there. You see, we don't have the right to hold back any part of our lives. The transforming power of the gospel radically changes every part of who you are. Or how about us as husbands? That we don't have the right to treat our wives any other way than as a gift from God, worth dying for. That it's not our role and right to domineer over, forcing submission, but instead to treat them the way that God would have us treat them. You see, the transforming power of the gospel, it radically changes every part of who you are. It makes you as radically different as a caterpillar is from a butterfly. Your life with Christ as a butterfly, your life without Christ as a caterpillar. Your life with Christ is not even a picture of what you used to be. That's what Paul's saying here in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. So my charge to you, as my charge to myself as well, is identifying areas in your life that you're holding back from God. The only response is to turn to Christ, to submit yourself to him, to give him complete authority in your life. Have a complete transformation. Be a butterfly, not the caterpillar with butterfly wings glued on. So let us go forth transformed, By the power of the gospel, as living sacrifices, as worship to our Lord and King. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the ability to gather here this morning to worship you. We thank you for the transformational gift that you've given us, and that's the gospel, Lord. We pray that you would help us to cherish that gift, to realize that It's not a half-hearted gift, but it's a gift that will radically change us every part of our life, Lord. Help us to go forth transformed. May the words said today be something that sticks with us, that your spirit will have driven them deep in our lives, and that we'll remember them beyond the day, but for the next weeks and months and years to come, Lord. pray all these things in your name. Amen.